Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir. In this episode, I am very excited to be interviewing Bean Kim. Bean is a staff research scientist at Google Brain focused on interpretability, helping humans communicate with complex machine learning models by not only building tools, but also studying how humans interact with these systems. She has served with a number of AI conferences, including iClear, Neurips, ICML, and AI Stats. She gave the keynotes at iClear 2022, ECML 2020, and the G20 meeting in Argentina in 2018. Her work TCAV received the UNESCO NetExplo Award, was featured at Google I.O. 2019, and in Brian Christian's book, The Alignment Problem. I was already an admirer of Bean's work before this interview, but after speaking with her, I admire her even more as a person in relentless pursuit of doing something valuable for the world, and solving very fundamental problems we will have as AI systems become a greater part of our lives. You also see at the end of this interview, I've tried to start diving a little bit into just understanding people's perspectives on on what it means to be a researcher. It's a little bit new. We usually focus on technical things, but we are trying this out. I hope you find that section valuable. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Gradient on Substack. You will get this podcast as well as our newsletters and articles sent directly to your email. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, it would be wonderful if you would leave us a kind review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. And now, the episode. To start with where we always start for this podcast, I'd love to hear a bit about how you got into AI in the first place. Yeah, happy to. I was actually a mechanical engineer back in South Korea where I went to undergrad. I spent my entire life in South Korea up until uh, grad school. And I always loved robots. Uh, fourth grade, I still remember the Pathfinder that was Mars Explorer was my my dream. And I uh, was glued to TV when that was happening as a fourth grader. So I always knew that I wanted to do something about robots. So I did robots for undergrad mechanical and I came to MIT for grad school. And I started getting involved in making an autonomous vehicle, a DARPA robotics challenge at the, at the time. And then I realized that, you know, the robot can go only as fast as the mechanics move, uh, whereas computers can think faster. I can code things faster. It can run without me watching. And I decided I my thinking goes a lot faster than robots can go. Uh, and I started interested in machine learning for that reason. I can just do a lot of things maybe faster and more efficiently. And then I uh, entered PhD, switched the topic to computer science. And I realized that, that that's where exactly the time where the AlexNet was on the rise when I started my PhD. And it started, everyone was really raving about all these big nets and doing amazing things, the high accuracy. And I, but I realized, wait a second, but if we were to use this network in real 
life and making decisions. Like, do we need to like kind of see what it does? And at the time, no one was interested. Uh, and I was lucky enough to meet Cynthia Rudin, who was a faculty at MIT at the time, and Julie Shaw, who was my main advisor, who's been very supportive of whatever I, I was excited about doing. And I started thinking about this idea, well, we really need to thinking think about how to understand and communicate between these boxes and humans. And that's where I really got passionate uh, and despite people uh, kind of discouraging me at times to do that topic, because it was just not a popular topic at the time. No one sure. really cared. One um, a faculty that I really, really respect one time told me like sincerely that being maybe you should consider a different topic because it's like no one cares about interpretability. And I took that to my heart. But then I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do whatever I want during my PhD because, you know, what? I'm barely getting paid anything. I just this is the only time in my life I can do whatever I want. So I just pursued. And here I am 10, 12 years later, I'm still doing the same thing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And and quite prescient, I guess, at this stage, it does seem like interpretability is a really, really important topic for the AI field. And um, it's great to see that you were kind of focusing on this ever since the AlexNet moment, because I know that in a lot of ways, at that time, and even kind of progressing forward, there was definitely that sense of, of leaderboard chasing at the expense of all else. And I imagine, as you kind of said, there, there was probably barely anybody who was really interested in these topics at the time. Tell me a little bit about how this kind of morphed into the thesis you ended up publishing and the sorts of problems within interpretability you were focused on, kind of how you thought about the field at the time. Yeah, I, I love that question. My thesis has like a very clear path. Uh, it shows the story of how my thinking progressed as I studied my PhD. So first I did robots. I started thinking about, okay, if the robots were to help humans in high stake decision environment at that time, uh, the re rescue uh, mission was my, of my interest. So we collaborated with Lincoln Lab to see how robots can read what human wants to do and kind of be a good assistant in that rescue mission. Maybe there's a dangerous area in the building that only robots can go. Maybe there are decisions that only humans can make. So I'd made a, I made a, a PDDL incorporated planning language, a uh, whole system with robots and a real, real demos. And then I realized, wait a second, it's not just about helping humans. It's maybe at times you want a model to make a decision because it's not as high stake. Maybe it's something that you want to automate. And that's when I made inherently interpretable models based on the prototypes, which is uh, well-grounded in psychology that firefighters make decisions quickly and efficiently and correctly using prototypes and examplers. So I made uh, the Bayesian case model and then with that, I realized that, you know, it's the interpretable models are one way communication models tell humans, OK, this is what I think. Now, there's no way for humans to tell back to the models. Oh, wait a second. That's not what I think. This is slightly differently how I think about this. Please incorporate. There's no way to do that in that model. So my final chapter in my thesis is interactive machine learning, which I call IBCM, where we uh, enable this pipeline, pretty simple pipeline for humans to communicate back to machine. And there we actually had teachers, the TAs of a basic computer science class at MIT. We invited a bunch of them. This course has been taught many years, so we were able to find a lot of TAs, friends mostly, and, and, and friends of friends. And they actually came in 
and interacted with the model that we built on the homework assignment Python code. So given a Python code, we cluster them in an understandable buckets and for TAs to better teach the course, whether it is to extract weird solution that uh, students came up with or prototypical mistakes that students make. Um, they came in, communicate with the models interactively uh, and gave us the feedback and, and the experiment went really good. It was a really long process of human experiments, I can tell you, like nights and days, but totally worth it as a toy showcase of how powerful interactive systems can be. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I'm, I'm getting here, you know, is one point you've been very vocal about and speaking about ML interpretability is the importance of doing experiments with not just, you know, I'm an AI researcher, I have this really cool method that makes sense to me in some way, but eventually down the line, this is going to be used with humans. And it sounds like kind of from the very beginning of your journey, even in your, your PhD, you were already thinking about this aspect of things. Could you linger on that part of it a little bit more and just tell me a bit about what your your process was at the time for, you know, thinking about these human experiments? Yeah, yeah, I love that question. I had uh, opportunities to interact with domain experts in rescue mission. Concretely, when um, was this 20, uh, 2013, blanking on the exact year, the, but when that unfortunate Boston Marathon bombing happened in, uh, in that year, I was actually at FEMA, this is the Federal Emergency Center in Massachusetts, observing how different parts of like ambulance, FBI, uh, state police, and um, uh, local police, city police, cooperate together to have this uh, giant uh, um, marathon, citywide marathon, multiple city, cross-county event. And we were there uh, when the bombing happened. And mm. that that was completely coincidental. We were there in the morning. We're interviewing everyone. And everyone's kind of getting bored. And everyone just uh, watching the runners. And then one, at one point, boom, that was it. And we were we stayed there for a couple of more uh, tens of minutes before we kicked out. FBI arrived and then we got kicked out. Uh, but that reminded that sort of experience together with just ch- chatting with rescue mission uh, folks at Lincoln Lab made me realize, you know, these experts in this field with high stakes, they don't have time to sit with you, look at the model and figure out what this number means and what that number means. No, no, no. You have to make it work for them. It is ultimately to help them. It is ultimately in that event, for example, we had a tool to quickly find people who have dispersed or injured. Like, that's what I want. That's what really matters at the end of the day. And that's what I want to do. And that really drove my entire work that I want to, you know, publishing papers is good. Being an academia, it's nice and cozy. But at the, at the end of the day, if my work didn't influence the way humans outside of a machine learning field, the whole world, didn't change the way that the world works, that's not a success in my in my opinion. And that led to my paper in the Towards Rigorous Science of Interpretability, where we advocate for you really need the golden standard is to test with human experts, that the people who are going to use this method, you need to get them in, 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 in your, in your um, lab or in the real, you go out to their real world and test whether your work works. However, in that paper, we also talk about 
that's not always possible. I was very fortunate to be at the FEMA at the time, have access to these experts. Doctors are expensive, so maybe you don't have this uh, uh, accessibility and the funding resources to do it. Then we suggest three different levels of testing. So if you do, can't do the golden level, then do functional level. Uh, make a, a task that uh, have, contains the essence of the actual task, but you can test for, with a bigger pool of people, maybe Turkers, maybe your co-student, co, co uh, grad students or, and others. And you can sort of go through these levels, but at the end, uh, to evaluate your method. But at the end of the day, the golden standard is to test with actual experts and end users. Yeah, yeah. I remember you had these three types of evaluations, kind of as you're pointing out. So it's like real humans, real tasks, real humans, simplified tasks, and then like no humans and proxy tasks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, while we're on the subject of towards a rigorous science of interpretable ML, actually, let's just take a second to um, talk about the the problem statement that was there in that paper, what you were kind of going after. I think that this was a really great overview of, you know, at the start, kind of what is interpretability? What are we trying to go after and really trying to formulate some things? But could you tell me a little bit about the issues that you might have been seeing at the time that you wrote this paper? What kind of motivated you to write it? and what you wanted to to fix with the, the ideas there. Yeah, exactly. And I think the issues that I've seen then ahead, it, it's improved, but I think it's still there, so which makes relevant to talk about in this uh, podcast. So the issues that I saw at the, at the time was uh, people showing sort of face value tasks. So people showing, hey, look, I, here's a sentence I highlight, the relevant quote, quote words, and hey, look, it makes sense, and therefore we have an interpretable method. And I real that there, there's just so much human psychology behind that statement that that's, makes that statement incorrect. That we humans have a confirmation bias. We like evidence that supports our belief. We're designed to do it. There's a huge study in psychology about uh, humans' just nature of doing this. So it's vulnerable to that. It doesn't check anything about whether it's quote quote faithful to the model. Is it really actually what, what model is doing or is it what model pretends to do? Or is it what we think the model should do? Like there should be a better evaluation of different categories. And that requires fit, setting an objective function. So what are we trying to do with these methods we're inventing? And we, in that paper, uh, we say that your ultimate goal is end task. You are trying to improve, for example, maybe save more patients, maybe do some medical task faster, or maybe make more uh, a system more um, pursue justice, depending on the definition of justice or fairness. I think these sort of uh, uh, what might, one might call ambiguities in evaluations exist to this day, and it's challenging. But I can tell you that there's centuries of philosophy research about explanations, uh, and it, I literally centuries where they talk about the evolution of this philosophy is interesting because I think we're following something very similar. At first, the philosophy folks thought, thought about we have to define what objectively explanation is. And then they pursued that for maybe a couple of decades. And then until uh, uh, Van Fressen came out and said, hey, look, you can't define an optimal explanation without thinking about context. So what you're trying to do with explanation. And that was like a turnaround for that field. Now they talk a lot about, well, you can't really define what it is, what explanation is without having to think about why are you explaining? 
And I think interpretability field is taking a similar path where some people still argue, well, we need a mathematical definition of what explanation is. And then we're now turning around and say, actually, no, you can't. That's like fundamental science and philosophy that they, we already, already talked about for centuries. Yeah, my answers are very long to your question. <laughs> no, that was really great. There's there's a lot to dive into there. And, you know, I I feel like definitely some other fields of ML, so, you know, like fairness, for instance, have encountered similar things. And there's a lot of issues tied up in there of just how do we humans think about fairness, accepting even the machine problem? And then you introduce machines into it. And there's this whole range of complications that start to get introduced. And um, looking at what you've, you've said in this paper, you know, it's like, it doesn't really make sense for me just to say this model is interpretable simpliciter, right? There's a lot of qualifications that kind of have to go into that statement. There are different definitions of interpretability that might be at play, and I kind of have to be fairly precise about what it is that I'm saying. As you said, there's also a particular context. It's not just like this thing is interpretable or this is not interpretable, but maybe I am a firefighter who needs to use a model for a particular purpose, right? And that kind of gets ingrained into the notion of interpretability that is required and therefore whether what is happening in the model meets that need or not. One thing I'm hoping we can linger on a second too with regards to this paper is you talk about a couple of different dimensions of interpretability that I think would be really great for our, our listeners to kind of hear about. So you talk about things like cognitive chunks, compositionality. Could you spend a second just laying out what those were? Yeah, I think those categories of properties now we call it um, has been, or desiderata, uh, has been evolving. And uh, that paper, we rigorous, Towards Rigor Science of Interpretability, we wrote it in 2016. We just finished uh, and published a chapter on Kevin Murphy's book, Probabilistic um, Machine Learning, a chapter on interpretability. There, we expand that list much, much longer. So it's mm. cognitive tongues and sparsity. Those are some things that we think about. Uh, well, actually, there's a there's a cognitive science folks thinking about the properties and there's machine learning people thinking about the properties. A lot of those overlap with each other, which is really interesting. However, um, going into details of what these are is, 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 uh, is, is tricky thing to do because the list is just uh, incomplete. Uh, and and I, I don't sure. think that we will ever have a complete list while all of these chunks uh, concepts are important and it's something that as a human you have to make a decision to see okay i really need to i'm going to pursue sparsity because i my users don't have time to look at these explanations for a long period of time um, but these lists are just ongoing but the core message in talking about those is that one clarifying the objectives not just with with machines but also in yourself like you as a designer of a machine learning model or deciding which method to use, you have to kind of make a decision. Okay, I need to, I want this property, but that means I can't get this property at the same time. You can sometimes get a truth through complicated faithful explanation if you're pursuing sparsity, for example. If your decision curve is very, 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 very curvy, then there, you just can't use it uh, used to explain two features to explain that very, very, very curvy decision boundary. So there might be some inherent trade-off. That's something that we talk a lot about in, in that paper. Um, 
if we have time, I would love to go uh, talk a little bit about our efforts to so so same effort to address this issue of ambiguity and explanation uh, in from a different angle, and that different mm-hmm. angle is to really just show people the, to their face how strong confirmation bias is. And there's like mm-hmm. series of work that we did that I'm very proud of. So for instance, there is it's a lot more powerful to show you that you're making mistakes <laughs> rather than telling you that this confirmation bias is a thing. So what we did in, in Sandy uh, uh, Check for Saliency Map paper is we have a trained network and a random network. This is just randomized network, never trained, random prediction, just kind of garbage uh, network. And we show that explanations from these two networks are visually indistinguishable to humans. And that work and associated with follow-up work where we actually put a medical x-ray in front of people and ask them, can you tell from these explanations that there is a spurious correlation, like this mark in that x-ray that shouldn't matter. Our model is using it because we constructed so that it has to use it. Can you tell based on these explanations? And, and the answer was most of the time, no, you cannot tell. And it kind of this angle of uh, trying to put this, uh, our mistakes, that is undeniable. Even if after I told you that these are from untrained network, you can tell. Uh, if I mix it up, you won't be able to tell. Uh, and that is to really make to the drive the point home that we have to be careful with these explanations, how we evaluate it, how we set the goal, and how we uh you know, claim the success. When do you claim the success? Um, Wool has to be end task based evaluation, and that's the golden test. And before that, you know, lots of efforts towards that computationally or human side is all useful, but we have to be really careful because we are the humans who have all those beautiful faults in our in our minds for creating these methods. Yeah, what you just said there kind of it reminds me a little bit of. Honestly, the the paradigm of just software testing, right, and interpretability, it's like we had these really interesting methods. And to what you said about saliency maps, they often confirm that kind of cognitive bias, right? So in that paper, I think you you gave a couple of examples of, you know, maybe something that can classify like dogs or cats or something of that flavor or, you know, um, other sorts of images. And as you said, even with a, a random network, it's kind of indistinguishable, the activations I see between the random network and the train network, which, as you said, brings in trouble. And what that lays out to me is that there's a, a miss that's happened in terms of testing these methods for the suite of things we, we need to test them for. And you've kind of laid out a lot of, a lot of dimensions along which that might occur. And the, the reason this kind of reminded me of software testing is there's so many dimensions along which I might need to stress test a piece of code. And if I miss any one of those, I kind of risk uh, putting, you know, a product or a piece of software out there that just fails in particular instances. And for something like interpretability, I see this being even more complicated, right? Because as you said, we have all these issues of, of confirmation bias. We have issues of automation bias, people just trusting these systems when you know, that trust hasn't necessarily been justified or on the end of the people developing the interpretability method, maybe looking at it from the perspective of, oh, you know, I'm actually building this uh, this interpretability method 
in order to gain my user's trust as opposed to something else. Right, exactly. Yeah, those are all super uh, resonating with me. And that's actually one of my greatest fear is that people would abuse uh, these methods to trick people into trust machines. And there's lots of great work uh, from a group in Microsoft, Hannah Wallach and Jen Wortman, uh, on this, uh, that people abuse and misuse interpretability methods. And that if you're too excited about interpretability methods or visualization, you can trick people to just trust the system, although you had built-in faults in that system on purpose to test exactly for this. Uh, and that's that's my sort of biggest worry. And also going back to your testing uh, as, uh, example, um, something that I talk a lot about in iClear Talk, slightly different uh, gear, is that you know the the key value, the core value that interpretability field is trying to contribute, is to reveal that unknown unknown that you will almost always have that access that you missed to test. It's true even software engineer, right? If we do, then we would never have uh, you know websites going down. Uh, so hot, but in machine learning model case, what's more difficult is that there's these things that only machines know that humans don't yet have language for. Like I move 37 in AlphaGo uh, that AlphaGo made against the, the World Go champion Isidore in 2016. That move 37, people in Go still talking about that move. Like it's mm -hmm. just out of human, right? And the challenge is that while that's a really fascinating, fascinating example, the challenge is that because we just can't comprehend how it did it, why it did it, testing it is extra hard, right? How do you even build a test to encompass that, that, that challenge and risks. And that's why I think my current, a lot of my work, current work focuses on expanding what humans know. So let's learn from machines. What is it, this new thing that it learns? Can we teach humans this new concept so that we can expand and learn? And if there's two circle between what humans know and what machines know, there's some overlap now, but can we, extend expand that overlap by expanding what we know that's what i'm really mm. excited about yeah i really love the way you articulate this problem in that talk as this idea of a language between humans and machines and you know i guess there's kind of a few ways you go at it at the high level of this language at a lower level of you know i have a particular representational space of the world a machine does you might think of it as like a basis or something, right? And then figure out what is that overlap? Maybe can we transform between bases somehow? How did you how did you come to that picture of looking at the interpretability problem? It was it's always been how I look at the the space. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think um, I think about think about two humans, right? You, 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 you work on this podcast with other colleagues and they're, they're, I'm sure they're wonderful, but I'm sure you have differences in thinking about the same problem and you have different solutions, different ideas, and you probably work together to come up with a solution that's probably better than you each can come up alone. Uh, and, and that's the differences between like kind of your Daniel's uh, representational space and your colleagues' representational space. This happens in my collaboration with other humans, a brilliant human beings who just think about the problem a different way. And that's how science have evolved 
one makes a hypothesis and the other criticizes, and that's how human society has been evolving. So I view this as the same thing with the machines that we are going to do: is that it's just like another colleague. We're gonna try to talk to them. They have a very different way of thinking about the problem, but some of them they solve really, really well, better than we can do. So can we just talk to each other to try to learn things from each other? Because machines are going to be wrong almost always uh, about something that we are right about. So we have to work together. And the the core um, challenge, technical challenge, there is to establish the same vocabulary. Just like we can talk to each other in English, but if I don't speak English, it's gonna be really hard to talk to you, right? So establish that base so that we can communicate in bits and bytes of information. That's what we need to do between humans and machines, because that's where the true working relationship, trusted working relationship, stem from. I'm really glad you brought up that problem of the representational spaces, how they differ between humans as well, because that was exactly something I was thinking about when. In your talk, you had that notion of, you know, increasing the representational space between humans and machines. And one thing that kind of brought up for me, and I suppose this is very much tied in with the contextual, objective, um, focused nature of how you want to conduct interpretability, how you want to do that sort of research. But when I think of this idea of maybe I want to take a machine's representational space, and then convert it to a human representational space. Well, in some aspects, I can imagine there's a lot of choices of representational spaces to translate it over to, right? Because, as you said, you know, maybe you and I have different sorts of ways in which we we mentally chop up the world. You brought up the language barrier. You know, I guess for one other example of that, like in Russian, for instance, there are particular words that just carry a lot of meaning in them, and that is tied up with cultural history and things like that. And so, an English translation isn't really going to convey all of that to me because I have not grown up as a Russian. There's things that I just really can't understand at all. And I'm curious how you think about the way this aspect of things. Affects you know the ways in which we want to think about converting from a machine representational space to a human representational space. Given that it doesn't seem like there is a canonical one in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, great question, great question. I speak two languages. I speak Korean and English, and mm -hmm. I, the exact example of the Russian word that you you have in mind, I have one in in Korean too, and and I know that. Even with the book, I need a book to explain this word to properly to somebody who doesn't speak Korean. So I completely uh, agree. Um, so useful research again to borrow from human factors and cognitive science here is what they call mental model. So what is mental model? It is an idea about how things work, and that's how people. Uh, use to do a task together. So for example, if I am collaborating with you, I'm, I'm, a rob uh, I'm, I'm a human and you're another human firefighter, the way that we work together, maybe cross-training, you do one thing A and I do B, and then we I now do A and then you do B. This cross-training uh, helps us to build the same, what they call mental model. And this mental model is how things get done and you and I, our co-understanding about the problem and the task space. Um, and the reason that this is relevant, a lot of work in cross-training and mental model has to be borrowed into interpretability, is because 
it's it's not our goal, even in humans. We can't perfectly align something. Like if I say penguin, what you have in mind about penguin is different from what I have in penguin. I'm thinking the penguin stuffed animal in the kitchen, my son's uh, little toy, whereas you might not be, you might be actually thinking about penguin. And this has been also well studied in psychology that the same concept, people have completely different understanding about what that is and different pictures. So it's not our goal, never our goal, and it's never possible to achieve is to align per- the perfect alignment. That's just not going to happen. It doesn't happen even between humans. So then instead, what we need to do is to build, build a, a shared mental model. As long as what you think has to be done is similar, your values aligns with my mental model and my values, then we can do a task together. And the goal is to improve, do that task better. And if that's the goal, we have achieved that goal through a shared mental model space. That makes a lot of sense to me. So that picture is, as you said, Again, even at the human level, we have this objective we're after, and we need to figure out what is that shared representational space that you and I can have? How do we kind of put our meanings on the table and things like that? One, um, one aspect of your talk, and I guess the way that we are now talking about interpretability in general, um, that I wanted to focus on was this idea of concept-based interpretability. And I've noticed, you know, in your work, You've commented on this as well. There was a shift from example-based to concept-based interpretability that has occurred both in your own work and interpretability more broadly. And I think, you know, even as recently as um, I think 2016, you had this paper, you know, examples are not enough learn to criticize where you were looking into this MMD critic method, right? And there's lots of these ideas of like, okay, um, I need to sort of give examples where you know, my neural network might not be doing so well and kind of understand things a little bit better better from that example-based perspective. Could you tell me a little bit about that shift in thinking, how that occurred for you? Yeah. Oh, such a great question. Um, I started, I started from the psychology point of view because I was starting with the rescue uh, mission, uh, those experts and, and prototypical thinking of uh, recognition primed uh, thinking is, is what they call it, uh, was at the core and center of my thinking, which is why we're the example came about. And then I realized, as you mentioned, that examples miss things. The, the decision boundaries tend to be complex distributions over these complex data points are also complex. So you need a nuance, which we call criticisms there, things that doesn't quite fit into that prototype, but human needs to know. Um, and then what I really realized was um, in, in and then I started working with more with medical experts when I joined uh, Brain. And then I realized, you know, this depth of the medical field, all these words that I have to learn as a new thing and takes such a long time to learn like what it means to be abnormal means is not what you think it is it's like something else like uh, you know you have mild covid symptom that's not mild in my world but in medically speaking you have mild covid symptoms like all these concepts i i realized that this is a whole new thing this is not something that like it takes layperson a long time to comprehend that means that trained medical experts uh, are very much efficient in thinking in that space of medical concepts, concepts that they're trained on over and over again, years after years, practice, practice, practice. And I realized it will be so much more efficient for them if machines speak their language, if the machines speak like their colleagues. And that would just accelerate not just adaptation, 
but just deficiency in general. And it just was obvious thing that to, to do at the time rather than doing pixel-based explanation, which was popular at the time. Um, that being said, I think all different mediums, like examples, uh, pic- pixels and concepts, all have pros and cons. It's not one fits all. Uh, there are, I think the best, uh, going back to you know properties, we talked about properties and evaluation and the end task evaluation. I think it's important to study this, your task carefully to figure out which medium is the best fit to achieve your end goal? And that might not be same as someone sitting next door. One might find concept ex- ex- useful, the other might find feature useful, really depending on what you do. But I think for a variety of these um, methods to solve the end task the, 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 and better evaluation we have, the better tools available for the experts to effectively solve their problem and efficiently. That makes a lot of sense to me. I guess um, I share the intuition that concept-based explanations definitely seem to be more efficient in lots of ways. But as you said, it's very much a use case-based thing. While we are on the topic of concepts, you had a really great set of papers that are, I think, you know, a great representation of this way of thinking, um, TCAV and friends. Could you tell me a little bit about the basic TCAV method, what you were doing with that? Yeah. Oh, that paper uh, was was kind of a magic and like side 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 railing a little bit. Like when I when I worked on that method and when it was magically giving me uh, the answers in in my toy example, I was I had this feeling uh, that oh my god, this is this is one of the best work I'm gonna do. Uh, and I I just remember that thrill and rush and like this is like this is going to be really exciting. Um, so so I have a, obviously a lot of passion in, in that work. So that work started from that basic principle that I want to use concepts to explain something because no one had done that before at, at that point. Uh, although there was a, net, a network dissection paper from MIT where it showed, they showed that, yeah, these kind of high-level things exist in each neural level, but no one had uh, framed that together to produce some explanation. So I started uh, with something very simple. And in fact, that's the method ended up in the paper uh, because it worked really well. And I think that it, since then, lots of people took that and extended to temporal data, um, uh, like uh, recur- uh, for the regression methods. But in that core TCAP paper, we just simply used a linear classifier to build this concept activation vector, a vector that represents a concept, whether that's a dog, fluffy ear, or whatever that of your choice as a user. As long as you can give some example of fluffy ear, I can build this vector. And based on this vector, using very simple uh, directional derivative, it's just a derivative with respect to this vector instead of one input picture. Uh, use and measure uh, sensitivity and aggregate that score uh, that falls into always between zero and one. And the power of this method that I realized is that I just couldn't believe when this first, uh, I did a couple of sanity check and it worked perfectly. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. Either I have a bug or something's weird. And so mm-hmm. I tested this for multiple, many, many, many models that was available internally. And like, I was just 
shaken like that that it, it works so well and so but the caveat there is that working so well here is still the toy data remember this is like back in 2017 when i was working on this that nothing uh nothing like this existed so like even working in this toy data was very 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 exciting to me um, and i think things since then uh i've seen many medical uh, papers that i've i've never met on any of the authors they extended to uh, classifying cardiac health, uh, one used to classify category of storms and science, uh, many other used to bird language model and, and lots of different kids, uh, babies of, of these methods came out that I was really thrilled to see. Yeah. One, one thing you kind of talked about as an extension in that paper that I'm curious if you've seen or explored was the, the basic idea of TCAV and the, the directional derivative you're taking, you're just looking at is my network sensitive to this concept at all? And one thing you talked about was incorporating things like the magnitude of conceptual sensitivity, for instance. I'm curious if you've seen any extensions along those lines or looked into that yourself. Yes, actually, one of the paper by Jessica uh, Shroff, who uh, works at also Brain. Um, this is I'm I'm also part of this paper, but really this is Jessica's work. Uh, I, I got involved <laughs> later down the road. So what she did there is instead of using the sign of the directional derivative, so original TCAP paper, I just look at the derivative sign of a derivative. Is it positive or negative? And just literally count how many positives I got. Uh, in in this Jessica's paper, uh, she defines some different measures called ICS um, that uh, combines integrated gradient, another very prominent feature-based method also developed at Google by someone else uh, with TCAV to get that, uh, to incorporate that idea of magnitude of these directional derivatives. Um, a lot of other people had delved into similar ideas like normalizing properly. We have some internal work uh, on on uh, better, how do you better normalize this, this often saturated gradient. Um, but, but I think the Jessica's paper probably is a good prototype of direction like this. Yeah, yeah. One thing, too, that seems important to note about TCAB is this, in some ways, does seem to be a little bit limited to concepts I can express visually, right? So if I have a, a more non-visual abstract concept, it might be a little bit harder to represent that quantitatively that might not really admit to chopping up via um, activations. Can you tell me a little bit more just about how you think of the space of concepts to which TCAV is, you know, applicable, effective, where it might not work so well? Yeah. So taking a few steps back, thinking about, think about concepts. So um, Tanya Lombroso is a faculty at Princeton who studies concept about in humans. Like how do people perceive concepts and how can we even talk about a concept of concepts? Like when I say chair, you know exactly, you know roughly what I meant, right? But no human, no two human agree perfectly what a concept means. That's, that's a whole uh, Professor Lombroso's work. And borrowing that idea to uh, concept-based explanation, I think same is true. So there will be a concept where I can definitely provide you examples. And I may or may not convince you that's a thing. But to me, it's a thing. And as long as you can provide a consistent set of things, mechanistically, uh, in theory, you can learn a vector that sort of represents that concept. In fact, a really good example to, to um, get at to your point, Daniel, is this work we did in uh, with artists. 
in uh, it's called mm-hmm. Moodboard Search and Cav Camera. So goal there was that okay, well we can if what if the concept itself doesn't really exist in mutual society? Like what if the concept is just my own? Like let's say the beautiful concept that one of the artists built was my father. Where uh, the artist had lost her father uh, a few years back, and there's the image of scenery that always reminds her of her father, and uh, that's very very subjective. And she was very surprised that uh, concept cab based uh, method, mood board search, and cab, concept camera were able to fetch her the images that also reminds her of her father, and and that is to get it. Okay, what if? Um, you know, the concept itself isn't an objective thing. Can you still leverage this tool that we made? And the answer is for as far as the creative uh, domain goes is is that we can. And that was fascinating result. Yeah, I, I did love the CAV camera project. Can you actually tell me just a little bit about the the collaboration side of it? I remember, you know, you were, as you said, you were working with artists on this. What What did that look like? Oh my god, that was so cool. So I, um, I, my mom is an artist. My aunt is an artist, and I, mm. I tend to tell my friends that, like, oh, if my mom didn't tell me to study, I probably have become an artist too. <laughs> so I had always this like passion for how can we use AI to help people be more creative? Because how, what is create, what is creativity? It's kind of thinking out of the box and, and connecting unusual things. And you know what? There's plenty of surprises that machine can give to humans. I see it every day. So why don't we leverage that? And that's kind of the the, the uh, birth of this project. Uh, in fact, I worked with the Nord Project, who is the folks uh, outside of Google who are designers who we closely work together. And they're phenomenal at uh really growing this uh, idea into a product and into a, a really nice demos. Um, once we, we, so we worked with North Project we're with designers, three, uh, three people in, from UK and a few other art uh, people in Cerebra at Google. And once we had the product, we invited professional photographers to work with our tools. It was pandemic, so we, we had uh, Zoom calls. And uh, the way that they, um, so we each had each of them build a cab based on their concept, their professional photographer, uh, like a, a concept of like what good good picture is. And then we exchange them, we share across them and and God, let's say I'm working on a cab and you working on a cab and I collect a bunch of pictures and you collect a bunch of pictures. Daniel built a concept vector of calmness and I can use this calmness vector to sort my pictures that I took. And I let we let the artist to look at that. Does this mean calm? Like, what do you think about this, Daniel's pick concept of calm? And there was such a spike of um, joy, just like being able to see what you're thinking about calmness and being able to apply that concept into my pictures. Uh, and so that it, collaboration and sharing was just phenomenal. And I, I, I could see their beaming in their faces it was just so satisfying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I imagine that you know, on on one end, in terms of the human aspects of interpretability, just enabling people to understand things, doing human trials is one thing. But as you said, this beauty of enabling creative expression, that must be just a completely different kind of catharsis. Yeah, it was so much fun. That being said, I would love all the tools are open source. The app is something you can download if you have Android uh, mm-hmm. and Moodboard Search is something you can download and use. 
Uh, I would love to see more people using it, especially artists, and see what and tell us what doesn't work, so that we can uh, uh, give birth to the next project and our project to amend those. Uh, yes, if if you're listening to this and haven't already downloaded Cav Camera, you should you should go do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to follow on with TCAV actually, just to ask you about some of the follow up work you've done on this. You um, pretty early or pretty quickly, I guess, pointed out some potential limitations of the original version of TCAV and gave a couple of follow ups to that. For example, the concept based sorry, the causal-based version of it. Could you tell me a little bit about, you know, some of the the follow-on work you've done there? Yeah. The mainstream that followed, uh, based on everyone at Google was asking, is can we discover concepts? What if I don't have examples or concepts have in mind already? Can you just give it to me? Uh, and that was like a one number one question that we were getting from internal product teams. Uh, so we did a bunch of work on that. One based on let's just block uh, learn super pixel, which is the chunks of pixels in the image that are uh, meaningful. This is the done in computer vision domain, very well studied domain. So we just use that off the shelf super pixel method to discover concepts. I.e., this is just clustering bunch of smart clustering on a bunch of those super pixels into concepts. Um, and then we realized, uh, well, that's not enough. If you discover concepts, you have no idea how good they are. Like together, do they explain 80% of the, the whole space or 90% of the whole space? And that's where the completeness of a concept uh, work came in a year after where we define a concept Shapley value to show you how well each concept that you discover cover the space of prediction. Uh, is it 80%? If it's 80%, maybe there's 20% that we simply can't explain yet in that circle again on the space of human, what human know and machines know. It's in that what machines know space. So we just can't uh, know it yet. Um, more recently, I've also done work on generative models. So instead of collecting existing training images or patches of it, why don't we let it draw for us? Oh, the new concept that it had learned. Um, and also prior to that, we, we made this whole TCAV to be causal so that you had learned a causal concept. Now, the uh, difficulty in both the generative model work and the causal work is the following. It comes with a lot of um, uh, extra things that you need to do. So for generative model work where the machine draw a concept for you, you need a generative model that's high quality and and really maybe with now Party and uh, Dali, we can do that a little better. But then you are bringing a whole whole another monster to the to the to the stage, right? Like, how do you know that it's faithfully drawing it and not just pretending to draw, right? So that's difficulty there. The difficulty in causal TCAP is that you need a causal graph that you trust and you believe that there are no other unknown confoundings. That's never true. That just is simply uh, an, an assumption you have to have in causal inference uh, that is simply you never can uh, v- validate. And so that's a challenge. If you have wrong causal graph, then any conclusion that you see could be incorrect and you wouldn't know it, which is kind of the worst case. So while we show all these kind of different venues, I think each of them can and have been uh, extended and improved and lots of more work to do in that space. And understanding limitation is, I think, one of the really important uh, ways to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that also just came to mind as you were speaking for me with regards to the 
concept-based analysis of these networks is the specific architecture we're dealing with, whether it's, you know, a CNN that has a very well-known inductive prior, right, of translation and variance, things like that. It might, its representational space, I can imagine, at least theoretically, might admit of learning different sorts of concepts than a different architecture, say, you know, a transformer, right? And one thing I'm curious about is I see this kind of effect of neural network architecture, specific design maybe influences a set of concepts it could develop possibly. Have you thought about looking in the other direction of, you know, maybe I have this idea of a set of concepts I'd like a system to learn. Can that influence the the design of the network in the first place at all? Yeah. Oh, I wonder. I wondered if you're gonna. You know that my paper on that one. Uh, so we we wrote a paper on concept bottleneck models. This is what yeah. Where we insert those known concepts that we want to be able to have access to and estimate importance of in the middle of mm-hmm. the network, so that uh, so that we can control it. Uh, I suddenly don't think that you know this medical symptom should be influencing final prediction of your diagnosis. Then I can zero out that neuron and 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 before uh, for feed forward and get a new prediction. And we show pretty uh, in actually medical data in that paper that this controllability improves the accuracy too. Um, but I, I, I liked the way that you talked about how different in, in inductive biases and how different architectures influence different concepts. In fact, uh, I would even argue like CNN, we don't really understand. In theory, yes, translation invariance should happen. But in other cases, like in, for example, AlphaZero, a work that we are doing uh, that uh, the the model from DeepMind that plays chess, even if we are using CNNs, the we can actually recover the location because of the specific way that this architecture stacks up each resonant blocks. So it's not even guaranteed that we will actually get a translation invariance. So what does that leave us? Uh, like we don't have that, you know, maybe governing principle across different architectures. Well, maybe two things. One is that I still believe that some of this general architecture or operations that we plug in to in designing architecture uh, will lead to some general behavior. Just like, you know, if you grow up in the city, you tend to attend to like better with the traffic. Maybe you, you, you're careful, like, oh, there exists a crazy driver's I need to be careful. So, so there is some governing principle of like your background influencing your action. Similarly, operations influencing the actions of the neural network. But uh, so that's like one thing that uh, is really interesting to to study. But also perhaps we have to go kind of beyond that and find a level of abstraction across these different architectures that uh, representations or method to recover representations that are shared across different architecture. And that will be the golden goal. What we tried, what we propose in TCAV is like the simplest kind of dumbest way of doing this, like linear classification, but it kind of works so far seeing from many, many different papers written on uh, using this method. So then the next question is, okay, how do we go to the next step? How do we make this more sophisticated? How do we make this even more general across temporal and flat image classification domains? Yeah, I I did really like how you approached the question in the concept bottleneck models paper. That was definitely kind of what I was thinking of when I posed the question. It's, It's neat, this idea that 
I've got the set of concepts I'm aware of, and you know, I can choose to intervene on whether a model is taking that into account or not. But yeah, it, it is interesting to look at the even higher level question, right? Of just like what kinds of inductive priors and things like that at an even higher level of abstraction weigh onto this question of the the concepts my model picks up and things that it learns. I can tell you a little bit about the Alpha Zero work. I always get so excited about this because uh, I think it's just one of the uh, it's just exciting work. And you know, again, back to the circle of what humans know and what machines know, and they overlap a little bit. Uh, our work that we published last year is to study: okay, what's in this overlap? Is there even an overlap between Alpha Zero and how humans play chess? Because Alpha Zero is self-trained network. It played against itself to get that better and beat all the humans. And it has never seen how humans play chess. But what we learned in that paper is like, yes, the human concepts do exist. And the way it evolves is kind of similar to how a human chess player would evolve as they play chess. So it would first learn the basic concepts like the uh, material imbalance, like how many pieces you have, how many pieces I have. And then it actually learns other important concepts and forgets this material material imbalance later in the training when it gets to beat the stockfish, which is the best stockfish uh, chess playing engine out there. Um, and, and that was just so fascinating. So right now we're working on a, a, a um, continuing project uh, where we now we're going to look at this area where only machines know. Can we think about that move 37? That's like my my golden standard. Is there something like move 37 that we can just discover? And we have a perfect person working on this. Uh, she was a professional chess player before she joined machine learning PhD student uh, at Oxford, uh, Lisa Shutt. And, and so she's working with us on this project and she'll be you know, the, the best candidate and perhaps the only person who can pursue this project. So I'm super excited. That's very exciting. And it sounds like that original collaboration on this Alpha Zero paper was very interesting too, right? You worked with, I remember Dennis Sasabis and Vladimir Kromnik. That must have been a very interesting collaboration. Yes. Oh my God. I, it was during pandemic and I had no nanny when my son was uh, nine months old. That that paper, by the way, was like multi-year collaboration. It took a, it took us very long time. Uh, and we had this call with Vlad, the world chess champion for like seven years, a continuous world chess champion. And I was holding my son because I had to take care of him during the two hour call. And I remember like kicking myself for not taking a picture so that I can tell my son that you had call with world chess <laughs> champion for two hours when you're uh, six months old mm -hmm. <laughs> that sounds that that must be pretty incredible well hopefully he has an exceptional memory and will you know grow up and remember that moment um one thing i i wonder about in this paper you pointed to a couple of the concepts that alpha zero picks up you know human concepts like material imbalance and it's really interesting to look at this idea that maybe it picks up on some concepts that we as humans, as humans would look at in deciding whether we have an advantage in a game. And maybe if it continuously learns those, given that it's so good at the end of the day, perhaps that's a kind of confirmation that, okay, you know, I as a player am focusing on the right things if I want to improve my game, if I want to win against my opponents. But it was really interesting too to see, as you pointed out, that there are some concepts where it learns them early on, it forgets them, maybe it picks them up later as well. How do you how do you interpret that? You know, the fact that it's learning something, forgetting it later as it improves its skill. 
Yeah, good question. A caveat before I answer your question is that this is one probing method that you use to claim that it had learned, quote, quote, and not learned. Uh, so mm -hmm. when I say learned and not learned, it is simply measuring how well one can prop uh, a concept. So it's one way, and there are many different ways to do it, each which could get you a different answer. So that that's uh, that's folded in that caveat. Um, how do I how do I look at that? Um, the information bottleneck paper came out. What was it? Twenty seventeen by Tipspy, uh, mm -hmm. who now uh, is is a really famous paper. And in that paper, what they argued is that uh, there are some concepts that learned and forgotten as you go closer to the prediction. So label related mutual information uh, uh, with the representation and the label get increased as you close to prediction, and some things actually completely get forgotten, like something about the input get completely forgotten. And subsequently, there has been lots of papers uh, that showed similar things like higher concept learned in the higher level and lower concept in the learned lower level. And I think all this uh, work about how these concepts evolve throughout the layer or at the training stage is just a super interesting one. And, and I think perhaps one uh, while the discovery and conclusions we can extract from these plots is really super interesting it's also equally important if not more important to think about our biases so when we plot that graph and collected human chess concepts we still have to think about okay well we're kind of shoehorning this uh, model into human concepts because that's the only thing we can understand uh, and here's the plot and it's interesting that it might follow how human chess players learn but I think what's really more interesting is what is different how do they learn differently how can they uh, it the alpha zero surprise us in a way that's productive, teach us new con new chess concept. Now, gaming gaming domain is is interesting on its own regard because we can get the just absolute world best champion and think about the learning what you, only machines know in this very constrained domain. But ultimately, whatever we learn from studying Alpha Zero, new concepts that uh, methods that we use to learn new chess concept, hopefully can be applied to science and medical domain down the line to discover help people in actual problems in, in these domains where the problems are very complex and hard to solve and where we can use this another coworker who thinks and uh, works out the solution very differently from us, the machines. Yeah, this idea of expanding the human space of concepts is really exciting to me as well. And, you know, one thing that, that immediately strikes me about it too is, so in one aspect, um, I see sometimes a little bit of overlap with, you know, things like feature engineering, right? So I might tease like a very simple regression model to do something more interesting, to classify better. If I hand a, you know, quadratic concepts, collections of things that don't really mean anything to me, but it's like, hey, this performs better, right? And in the same way, a machine might hand back something to me once I interrogate its space of concepts. And it's like, well, obviously, you know, this produced move 37 or something of that flavor. But to me as a human, it makes no sense, at least right now. And so we have this question of translation there. One thing that, that kind of, you know, teases out for me, since you were also bringing up philosophical perspectives on explanation earlier, is these intuitions that we have of the world. So, for example, Kant says that we 
sort of chop up the world into these categories that kind of exist predefined in our minds. And you might agree or disagree about whether we have these a priori notions of space and time and things like that. But I think there is something to be said about the kind of representational concepts in our mind that almost dictate how we chop up the world when we apply our faculty of reason to it. And to me, that seems to um, possibly impose certain limitations on the flavors of experience, the flavors of reasoning that we can possibly understand. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if you've thought about this in terms of that translation between the teachings and humans and what that kind of looks like. Yeah, so, you know, I think what you're getting at is like balance between kind of framing the question to the machine in a way that we can understand versus mm-hmm. limita- limiting it uh, just because we are, sh- we, we are framing it so that we can understand. So it's- That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, but it's a difficult balance. Um, and I think this is kind of circling back to our initial uh, part of this conversation in incorporating and having experts in the room is so important. Because as an engineer, um, I can only go so far in playing in working with chess network. I know how to play, and that's kind of my limitation is, and that will be inflected in the way that I build this method. But what's crucial to go beyond that, or as far as we can anyway, is to have those domain experts in the room. So in this case, we have Lisa, who is a professional chess player. Uh, and in medical domain, I just gave a talk at um, Machine Learning Conference for Healthcare, where I talked after a doctor who, who like really talk, thinks about this real problems, like the real like today, day-to-day problems. How do we save more lives and more effectively and more efficiently? And that's kind of the conversations that we need and then people that we need to have in the room. According to him, um, it, it, his, his last name is Professor Bozeman. I, I think I'm portraying his last name. But uh, he talks about how only one paper out of seven medical machine learning paper includes experts, medical experts. That's too low. That's very, Mm. very low. And where this trade-off that we just talked about is just so limiting. You just only have engineers who don't really uh, um, do this medical practice day-to-day. You really need those experts in the room so that we can really strike sweet balance between limiting the network versus doing something, extracting something that we can understand. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess, again, this is something that's driven a lot by by objectives, what we're using things for, what is contextual. I think this is probably a great place to wrap up our discussion on interpretability. While we still have a couple of minutes left, I actually wanted to spend just a little bit of time um, asking you about your your broader perspectives, just you know, as a researcher, as somebody focused on machine learning, you talked about getting into AI from your MEC-E background. And I just want to ask a very broad question, you know, over your time really transitioning into AI research and doing a lot of very important work, how do you think about what it means to you to to be a researcher just broadly? Mm-hmm. I thought about this a lot during pandemic and where world seems to be going uh, chaotic, to say the least. Uh, why am I spending time on this uh, when I can perhaps there's more urgent problems in the society and the world? 
Um, my goal has been and always will be. Well, I, I, I don't know. Will be uh, my goal always has been to do work that I am proud of. Concretely, I often think about this. Might sound weird, but I often think about when I die. I have people I love near my bedside. I hope, and when I die, am I proud of the world that I'm leaving behind? Did I was I net positive to the world? The fact that I existed in the world helped the world. That's my goal,、uh, and I oddly I think about that quite a lot. And now after having a son, I think about it even more. Like my son will turn teenager and will ask, "Oh, mom, what do you do? Like, what do you do daily basis? You look busy." I want to tell him that I do something that helps the world, and that my work had influenced for the better for 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 people.、Um, that's what drives me every day. Hmm. Well, I I think I can say personally that I feel like your work is definitely doing a lot to um to impact many people, and so I'm I'm excited to see it go forward. I guess one follow up here is I think there's a a big gap between the high level aspirational notions of what it means to be a researcher, what it means to do work. And often the the day to day drudgery, right? Doing research, being in a PhD, it can get frustrating. It can get difficult. You know, we are all people. We have our limits. How how does that affect you? How do you think about just what your day to day life kind of looks like as a researcher when you get frustrated? How do you handle those things?、Mm, I climb.、Uh, <laughs> I I I love rock climbing.、Uh, it's one of the venues that I think, especially back at when I was doing PhD, my My outlet、uh, for 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 stress relief, but I think over time what、uh, became clear to me is,、um, and this might sound just cliche, but it's so true. The more I live, more more is true. Is that you gotta do what makes you happy. You gotta work on the topic that makes you happy that you believe in, and only then you can do the best job. Only then it will. You will fully fly for for the, for for what I what I imagine,、um, and don't change who you are. I I'm in a field where、uh, I'm from South Korea. I have a different cultural background. I'm a woman. I'm Asian. Like there's a very different cultural background that I had to be. I was introduced to when I first joined this field,、um, and I made a very conscious decision at some point, very early on. I I said, you know, there's this old book about how I should. Behave differently, or do things differently, or more aggressive and whatnot, that leads to success and whatever. I decided early on that you know I actually, it's such a high activation energy for me to be different than who I am. So I'm not gonna change who I am. The same reason I pursue interpretability, even though people told me not to, was like ah, it's just me. Like I just kind of want to do this, and that's that's me. And I mean that's it's my life, so I decide. So don't change who you are, and and I think that. Just being yourself makes you happy, no matter what happens on the on the way. I love that. I think that's some really great advice for for our listeners to take away from this conversation. Well, I think this is a great place to wrap things up. Bean, thank you so much for taking all this time to chat with me. I really appreciate you and your work, and thank you again for a great conversation. Thank you for having me. This was great pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. That is a wrap. 
Thank you so much for listening to this edition of The Gradient Podcast. You can find our podcasts, newsletter, and other articles at thegradient.pub and our substack at thegradientpub.substack.com. If you like this episode, please consider supporting us by sharing it with a friend or subscribing. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and feedback. So if you wouldn't mind leaving behind a review, we would really love to see it. See you in the next episode.